Hello and welcome to FilmWalk. This is Glenn. I'm here with Daniel. Hello. And tonight we're going to be reviewing a film that dropped on Netflix about a week ago called The White Tiger, uh, which is from director Ramin Barani. But first, we're going to be checking out an upcoming film that is coming out this weekend uh, on Amazon Prime from writer-director Mike Cahill, and that movie is Bliss. I have a picture in my head of a place. I don't know if it's real, but it has a feeling, and the feeling's real. Hi, my love. Hi, Dad. I wanted to talk to you about my graduation. I think I'm going to be there in the bleachers. I'm going to see you in your... Let me, let me, Are how about I, I call you back? Okay. Taking the day off in here? Her boss wants to see you. Can I get a whiskey? Double. You're real. Sorry? I want to tell you something really cool. You see all these people outside? They're not real. This is a simulation. You ready? That was from the trailer of Bliss, the new film from writer-director Mike Cahill, starring Owen Wilson, Salma Hayek, Nesta Cooper, and Bill Nye, oddly enough. This film features a man named Greg Whittle, who uh, is in an, in an unsatisfying corporate job amid, uh, amid cubicles, and all of a sudden he meets someone who persuades him that he's living in a simulation. Wait, this sounds a little bit familiar, Daniel. It does. It does. I think there was a movie that came out in 1999 about this. Yeah, Existence. Yeah. This film is definitely aware of its influences, I would say that is fair to say. Um, Mike Cahill is a sci-fi director who has done some very interesting films. He did a movie called Eye Origins, which we previously reviewed on the podcast, which uh, is a film that I think I loved and ended up putting in my top ten for the year, and you loathed, as I recall. Is that right? I don't recall, but that sounds on brand. Uh, Eye Origins was a film in which there was a character who developed a... He was researching the evolution of human eyes, and he came to believe that human eyes were some sort of window into the soul, but in the Oh, that's right. Yeah, I know that movie was dumb. Kind of a supernatural connection, so I I rather enjoyed that movie. He also did a movie called Another Earth, which was also about sort of creating parallel worlds, so he's he's sort of bouncing around in in this area before. And this film is... uh, it features characters who are somewhat kind of genre savvy. It reminded me a little bit of Palm Springs in terms of kind of how self-aware, in particular, Salma Hayek's character of Isabel is about their situation at the start. I mean, she flat out says, this is a simulation we're in. I created it. It's my fault you're here. And also she reveals that she has telekinetic powers in the first scene. So it's sort of, uh, the movie is sort of right out front with this woman, at, le- at least what this woman is saying is reliable in this world. Yeah, the level of discovery, we won't take long to get to the point, right? Yeah. Like, it's right from the get-go. Within, like, ten minutes of the movie, we're off to the races. Yeah, but at the same time, uh, and, and also the, the plot involving uh, involving Greg, involving Owen Wilson's character, is, is pretty fascinating, too, because he sort of accidentally murders his boss. And this happens in the first five minutes, and the way in which that is handled is not only very clever, not only very well staged, but it is also just a nice launching point for what ends up happening with this film, which is this guy basically hanging out with with a homeless woman who lives under a bridge um, because she's his guru at this point, and she's telling him what's really going on in the world. And man, Salma Hayek is just fantastic in this film. Um, I don't think I've seen her in a lead role in multiple decades, and she is just fantastic. Yeah, she has to balance quite a bit of character work in this film, and I think she does a really good job. I have a soft spot for Owen Wilson. I always have. There's something about that guy's drawl and his charm that I think just appeals to me. 
But I think, you know, Selma Hayek is the real star of this film. Absolutely. Yeah, the other, uh, I, I agree with you about Owen Wilson, actually. He's also an actor that I've that I've always enjoyed, but, uh, but not just in a... This movie also somewhat reminded me of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I don't know if you mm-hmm. if you got that vibe as well. A little bit of the filmmaking felt like that. Um, a little bit of the uh, of the cinematography felt like it was going for sort of similar tricks uh, from this guy Marcus Forderer. It's definitely playing around with reality in some interesting ways, and it's. Uh, I mean, they were they were constantly just fucking around with the background. Uh, I mean, every every background billboard from the start of this movie is for a rehab center. Also, there you know there are moments where people are disappearing, reappearing in the background. There are moments where people are fading in and out of reality, where objects are disappearing or sort of f- glitching in and out of reality with little little staticky bits. And that happens throughout the film. So it, it's just kind of designed to keep your level of certainty that you understand what's going on at a nice like sixty five percent, and it never really exceeds that. No matter where we go, no matter what we see. Yeah, I really like the fact that we get introduced to Greg Wiggle as someone who clearly has some sort of mental illness, right? He, he takes medication for it. He's struggling to get a, a refill on his prescription. Well, I, I don't know if you caught this, but his prescription bottle was actually for hydrocodone. So he was he was an addict. Okay, gotcha. Now, they don't flat out say it, but that is what is that is what is heavily implied to be going on, is that he's just going on a drug bender. Okay, fair enough. But so he has an image in his head that he sketches out in grandiose detail. And that's like he's so preoccupied with that image that sticks with him. Uh, and I really like that because that image, we learn more about it as we go on in the film, that it throws off your level of certainty as to what's real and what's not uh, in the film. I couldn't settle on whether or not this is Matrix Reloaded <laughs> or if this is Mental Illness Break. And because I'm never really 100% sure, I, I was engaged the entire time. It just kept my interest. It's interesting you did, that you went through the movie thinking that it was about him not having his meds or not having his uh, his psychological meds as opposed to being an, an addict, as opposed to uh, to wanting to, tr- to try to find his next I didn't read the place. label. That is interesting. I wonder if I would have interpreted the movie differently going through it, but I think functionally it's pretty similar because we see these characters acting like out-of-control drug addicts throughout the film. I mean, they're popping these yellow crystals, which right. allow them to activate their telekinetic powers, and we also see things that they do get undone right in front of us, or get questioned right in front of us. Uh, we have this character played by Nesta Cooper, and this is Emily Whittle, who is Greg's daughter, Greg's adult daughter, and she's in a pretty thankless role, because from the get-go, we have we have our most authoritative character in this film, Isabel, saying, hey, your daughter is not real. She is not a real person. She's an NPC or a... Uh, there's yeah, another, an NPC. Yeah. Another term for that. But at the same time, Nesta Cooper is imbuing this character with such humanity and such emotion, and she is, of course, playing the character completely straight, which is, my dad is this unreliable drug addict who is living on the street, and... You know, he's missed my graduation. He's he's estranged from the family. I'm the only one who cares if he's alive or dead. And she's sort of chasing him around for the entire film. And I I found myself feeling compassion for her version of reality, even as I sort of wanted it to not be true. As the film sort of delves into the issues of kind of, I don't know, almost techno-optimism when it comes to whether such a simulation would be a good thing or a bad thing, it kind of kind of plays with those ideas. I almost found it inadvertently raising the ethics of what creating a simulation of self-aware NPCs, which think that they're dealing with these life-changing complications, like what is is just an ethical nightmare. If you create somebody who thinks that their life is being destroyed, you're you're destroying their life for real. Like that's true regardless of what gets revealed over the course of the film, and it is kept nice and nebulous what is true over the course of this film. 
Yeah, there is definitely an element of Black Mirror in, in this film, for sure. I liked it overall. I think the twists were, you know, somewhat predictable. But I, I overall, I my interest was, was engaged the entire time. I thought Selma Hayek was fantastic. I thought Owen Wilson played a really good job towing that line between what is real and what's not, right? You know, he plays the straight man pretty well. I think this works. The utopia that they talk about in the film i have questions on <laughs> but i i think overall the movie works yeah it's a movie that it's it's a framework that gets sketched out in more detail over the course of the film and it starts out as literal sketches that uh, that greg is making at his desk but i think we can talk more about where that goes once we get into spoilers here i also rather liked there's a scene at the roller rink they literally go roller skating this is right after the two characters have met and this is right after greg has somewhat accepted her version of reality that this is all a simulation he doesn't quite want to give up on his on his daughter who is still looking after him but he's he's happy to sort of go on this little adventure here and explore his budding telekinetic powers and it's such a fascinating moment because initially isabel is just messing with people for actual grievances you know there's a guy grabbing some girl's ass on the roller rink floor and she knocks him down with her telekinetic finger guns and somebody judges her and Initially, it's real slights, and then it's imagined slights, and then she's just going on a full-on GTA rampage, <laughs> intercut with them just full-on having sex in the in the bathroom stall in there. Lots of sexy times. I cracked up when the telekinetic powers caused one of the lights to swing to swing down and hit one of the roller skate uh, participants in the head. I definitely chuckled at that. It was it was comical. It was using violence in a way that uh, invited the audience to to sort of revel in it and also not think too hard about it. And I I found myself thinking back on that scene over the course of the film a number of times because like what really happened in that scene is not entirely clear, uh, be- especially because of what of what happens immediately after that scene. So, right, their their perception is very different than probably reality. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I... But they have a shared perception, which is interesting, right? They're both, they both experience the thing the same way. Yeah, what's that they call that, a folie à deux? Sort of two people who are just kind of punching each other up and... Yeah, folie à deux, uh, madness for two, known as shared psychosis or shared delusional disorder, is a psychiatric syndrome in which symptoms of a delusional belief and sometimes hallucinations are transmitted from one individual to another. So I found myself thinking of that over the course of this as, uh, as well, is, you know, are these, two re- are these two the only ones who are living in their own reality? And, of course, the movie... In- actively invites you to encourage that hypothesis or to, to consider that hypothesis as well it goes i mean selma hayek uh, you know as, as isabel she says that we're real nobody else is yeah and I, I don't know it's I, I tried to see it from her perspective because you know as we see her rampaging through the uh through the the roller rink with her telekinetic powers i'm like who among us has not done that at least once in a video game <laughs> like it's got to be horrifying to greg because for him this is still the real world and for him he still hasn't quite accepted that this is her simulation but for her, it's it ain't no thing. And and watching just sort of the bent moral plane that she's operating on over the course of this is fascinating. So, uh, well, I think, shall we go ahead and get into spoilers here? I, th- I think we have to go with that utopia now. All right. Well, uh, I think that this film is dropping on, on Amazon Prime, and I think it's definitely worth uh, checking out. I think there's been, a, there's been kind of a saturation of uh, content that is, let's just say, the good place adjacent. And this feels like something that will be sold in a very similar way, but is very much not that. Uh, this is not about supernatural fantasy. Um, this is about this is this is really kind of kind of messing with your perceptions of reality in a similar way to The Matrix. But it feels like it's it feels wholly like its own thing. So I can't recommend this movie enough. Um, Daniel, any final thoughts breaking the spoilers? 
No, I, I was pleasantly surprised by it. I, I think it holds up. I think that the performances are solid and the world building is interesting enough that you stick with it the whole time. Well, as uh, Greg says to Isabel, is it safe? And she responds, kind of. <laughs> From here on out, spoilers for Bliss. So there's an exit mechanism. Uh, you have to take 10 blue crystals. It has to be exactly 10. So I, I, I loved the production design on Isabel's uh, sort of sort of lair. It was like her own little Animal Crossing island where she kind of just stacked up a bunch of stuff nearby and she'd yeah. set up her own kind of bootleg power and bootleg water. And, uh, you know, she, she had basically the nicest home, was like solo homeless encampment in the world. And uh, she also had an electronic safe that had these blue crystals in it, so... But they don't have enough. They've only got six each. So they, they eject themselves and they wake up on, a, on an island. And I thought it was Greece initially, but they shot in Croatia. Uh, so this was this was a real place they filmed in. Uh, and, and of course, the place that Greg has been drawing throughout the movie is, is this, uh, this paradise in Croatia. But it's not just... It's not just a coastal paradise where they've got all the olive oil they can fucking drink and uh, and they you know they live together by the gallon as husband and wife in this palatial estate with this pool that's not quite the right temperature but I think you'll survive and they're also in this idealized sort of Star Trek utopia so Daniel what did you think of this place well it sure seemed like a nice place to visit even if the pool was a little cold <laughs> I mean we have universal basic income as a thing Andrew Yang's dream has come true <laughs> and Andrew Yang is probably forever president you know we have astral mining so everybody's fucking loaded well first of all we skipped over something here when they wake up what exactly is it that they are connected to <laughs> <laughs> some elder brains <laughs> it is a vat full of brains yeah called the brain box and it's all branded they're inside this lab and it it appears to be like the brain box is is like a telescope in that it's a shared scientific resource and they're just booking time on it for her particular hypothesis and her right. hypothesis which is revealed over the course of this of this sequence is that Basically, people get satisfied with anything. They get used to anything. Even this paradise of a world that they are in, they can get used to yeah, and they can be unsatisfied with. So you have to experience a simulation of the way things used to be, or in this case, some some idealized, horrible version of the way things used to be, in order to more readily appreciate this world. And this world, as she explains to Greg, uh, had basically three things. Automation, synthetic biology, and asteroid mining. Uh, so lots and lots of money. Curing all illnesses and basically an end to scarcity and an end to tedious labor. So people are just sort of free to do whatever they want and to kind of explore their explore their their intellectual or artful sides. Um, hey, so that sounds lovely. Doing. It does. We have a Congress right now that can't decide whether or not fourteen hundred dollars uh, to be given out to everybody suffering from you know losing their job or just you know from coronavirus in general. But in this world, astral mining has covered everything. So I like this world. This world is basically the techno-optimist perspective because it not only idealizes uh, essentially limitless consumption and limitless free energy, it also essentially takes the consequences of those things out of the equation. So synthetic biology, the implication there is that basically we can't make ourselves sick anymore and we don't just get sick anymore. And also it doesn't really matter what we do to the environment because synthetic biology also refers to uh, GMO trees that's, that suck carbon out of the air and, and things like Super that. That suckers. is explicitly what's what's shown on the Thought Visualizer, which is, uh, which is I guess, a, a GPT-powered Etch-A-Sketch. 
It's uh, a pretty cool device. I, I would definitely play around with that. I'll put this link in the show notes, but OpenAI actually released the Dolly framework. That's D-A-O-L-E. And it generates imagery for tech, for specific text prompts. So you can ask it to do things like give me an alligator in the style of a giraffe. Um, or give me a, give me an elegant pencil sketch of a, uh, of like a wombat riding a, riding a unicycle, uh, wearing a Christmas sweater and it'll do it. It'll give you 20 versions of that. So, well, I want this device back in the movie. Well, somebody could bake it into a large display and have it uh, respond to your voice prompts. That is certainly a possibility. I want to know where, what, where in a pickle looks like. Apparently it's I, really funny. So the techno optimist perspective here, I think is... I mean, they are very explicit that this is that this is sort of a religion for 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 atheists. Uh, at least that is what is sort of implied here is that this, like they they flat out liken this to the Garden of Eden. There's there are multiple moments where he's talking to he he tells her, you know, you give me this bite of the apple and I just want to try it a little bit more before we go back to that to the dull ass real world. And I'm like, I mean, okay. the real world does sound pretty awful. I mean, that company he worked for technical difficulties where each person answers the phone saying, I'm sorry you're having technical difficulties. That sounds like hell. <laughs> yeah, it also doesn't sound like a real place. But but I think that both places had things like that. Where Didn't you work in a place like that? I, I answer the phone with a scripted prompt, yes, but it's not that. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's totally different. Whatever it takes for you to sleep at night. So there's telepresence holograms. Uh, people are wandering yeah. around sort of sort of translucent, uh, which also feels like a byproduct of the pandemic. I know instead of I, instead I like of the a, idea of telepresence. I mean, I, that's kind of how I feel now. I don't know, man. So, telepresence at this point looks like an iPad on a self balancing scooter. So it's uh, it's hard to imagine uh, it looking. Uh, like a uh, community. This seems like a pretty nice world, but it also feels like a world that is meant to seem deliberately like a fantasy. In much the same way, as sort, it's, it's sort of yin and yang with the first world that we see there, where both worlds kind of feel flawed, both worlds kind of feel like exaggerations uh, of, of real things. Right, so how much of any world is real? And I, I think that the movie really doesn't answer that. It leaves it up to your interpretation, because Greg is crazy pants. But also, you know, Greg is, uh, we get a little bit of dialogue, and I think that in both cases, we step outside of either of them. Uh, and and we we sort of expand on the world, and we hear characters talking to each other that don't involve these characters, which I think helps flesh out the reality of those situations a little bit more. We get scenes with uh, with Greg's two adult children, uh, Arthur and Emily, uh, talking to each other at his apartment, and Arthur has no desire to help his dad. He's been burned too many times; doesn't want to get involved with him. But he also exposits a little bit about Greg's history with drug addiction. You know, it's always he's got a he's got a shoulder that hurts. He's got a leg that hurts. Oh, I thought it was which side was it? Was your was it this arm? Was it that arm? The sort of ebb and flow of opioid addiction is clearly a long term story within this family. But the mere fact that these characters have backstory, it sort of becomes a you know a cogito ergo sum kind of moment here. If these guys can have feelings about Greg's situation, they are obviously real on some level. Well, and look at well crafted NPCs. I guess, but at the same time, Isabel and her friend Kendo, uh, who's also her dealer within the world, Kendo, I think, acts like a real person and acts like an NBC at different times. So it's a little, it's a little tricky there. At one point, he flat out asks her, "Is this guy real?" And she's like, "Wouldn't you like to know?" And that's just, that's just a throwaway there. Like they were both ostensibly colleagues. It's very odd that he would think that. So mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. Uh, this movie has a wild imagination, though. I, I was never bored by it. It does. And, and the police uh, standoff at the end where they're debating which one gets to go back. 
I, I loved everything about that scene, right? Because Owen Wilson, as, as Greg Whittle, is immediately like, well, I can't stay here. You get to stay here. I'm going back to the Eden. <laughs> right. But then he reverses himself in the very same scene. He so, does. I don't know. I, I was kind of mixed on that. I feel like this is a character who didn't really have a conclusive arc because he never fully decided on one on one or the other. Well, no. He, he settles on... He wanted to give the real world a chance, or the original world a chance, because he believes his daughter's real. And that and that's that's the tether that keeps him there. Yeah. And what's keeping him in the in the quote unquote real world, the other the idealized world? Well, it's this woman that he just met. And he right. has to sort of take her word on what is what is real and what's not. An interesting detail about these two worlds, Bill Nye exists in both of them. <laughs> I think Bill Nye exists in all worlds. So we see footage for we see footage of various protests, and we see footage, uh, including of the science march, which happened in uh, I think I think it was on Earth on or about Earth Day, twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen. It was one of the anti Trump protests, but uh, Bill Nye attending the the science march in D.C. was shown in this film, and then we see this character played by Bill Nye, who's identified in the credits as Chris, appearing in the in the Utopia as well. So I I felt like that was. That was sort of the movie saying that it was not going to take a position on which world was real because <laughs> it was mm-hmm. going to put this character in both. Yeah, the uh, the worlds bleeding into each other. I mean, I just kind of took that as like a psychotic break, right? Like yeah. th- this was like everything is going wrong for this guy. And it was, it was very cool imagery for sure. Yeah, for sure. I definitely liked how the movie was ambiguous on the ending and that uh, he, he says in an AA meeting that, you know, I'm, I'm here because I believe my daughter's real. And that to me is his art. Before the cops bleed into their world, his daughter bleeds into the world. Mm. And there's this moment where she appears as one of these telepresence holograms uh, up above the party. And somebody walks up next to her and says, I wouldn't go down there, ma'am. He seems like he's unstable, sounding entirely like a cop. And then the real cops show up and start beating the shit out of people. But also protests are happening. Molotov cocktails are being thrown. But everything's also still kind of just half there. Graffiti is starting to appear on the wall. It's a sunny day in Seattle. Exactly. Yeah, it's a typical day in Chop. Chop has taken over most of the Northwest now. Not just like six square blocks for three weeks. Correct. Yes. Yeah, I don't know. It's um, Chop Mania. Uh, yeah. I mean, we li- in our in our real world, we've already got people living in multiple fictitious worlds. I mean, Chop is a perfect example of that. We had the head of the Seattle Police Union out there uh, promoting on right wing media thro- across the world that you know people in Chop were shaking down businesses for protection money. <laughs> Total lie. Never happened. Not a right. single report of that happening. Not a single witness. Not a single victim. Not nobody came forward and said that that happened to them. It was entirely made up by the police. Yep. Um, but 100%. for. But for some people out there, that is the real world. Bex Cannon, yeah. I don't know how much of that was meant to come to mind watching the film, but I felt like its invocation of all the protests and all the police brutality felt like it was meant to, I don't know, it was, it was meant to create a sense of our own reality being fractured in some way. Like, this isn't quite right. This isn't quite how we're supposed to be living. Yeah, possible. I mean, if the, I guess if the movie went more into that, like leaned more into that, Maybe they were making that point. I, I think that it was more like flavor text as opposed to like making a broader point. Just sprinkling it in there, just a little a little light dusting of ideas. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I don't think it was trying to say anything specific about that. Um, well, Daniel, uh, any any final thoughts here other than other than definitely check this out? I mean, I was really surprised by just how much I enjoyed Selma Hayek. Not not that I was expecting anything like a, like a poor performance. 
Like she's really the superstar of this film. And I was like, where where has she been? Like I assume she's been doing stuff, but I want to see more of her in the lead role. I think she was great. Yeah, the last film that I saw her in was The Hummingbird Project, and she was she only put a small part in that. So, uh, it yeah, I don't know. It's been a while, but she's she's fantastic. So I would love to see her uh, in more things. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion of Bliss. If you have any feedback on our discussion, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. That's assuming that any of this is real. And now on to our... Re- You're not real, man. <laughs> Am I real? And now on to our review of The White Tiger. When I first saw him, I knew then this was the master for me. I want to be a driver for your son. Hey, how much rope? Hey, don't do that. <laughs> hey, driver! I'm Pinky, nice to meet you. Balram, have you ever seen a computer? We had many of them in the village with the goats. Okay. The goats are pretty advanced to use computers. Okay, now you're being a jerk. I didn't like the way he had spoken about me. Since I was a boy, the desire to be a servant had been hammered into my skull. That was from the trailer of The White Tiger, the new film from director Ramin Barani, based on the book of the same title by Arvind Adiga. It stars Adarsh Gurav, Priyanka Chopra Jonas, and Rajkumar Rao. And this film is the story of a man named Balram Hawai who starts off in a small Indian village uh, of Laxmanga. And he basically has uh, has no future, has no prospects. He's going to work in the same the same trade as his family. He's going to live and die in that one place, uh, in in abject poverty and in the low caste into which he was born. But uh, he ends up sort of uh, sort of bootstrapping his way to the top, and this is the story of him doing that. It is also the story of sort of the rise of India as a uh, as an economic powerhouse, as an IT outsourcing powerhouse, um, as really a a much bigger player in global capitalism, and also uh, the extent to which India and China. China's relationship, um, as well as the uh, the ascension of Indian and China, uh, maybe maybe supplanting the West uh, to some degree. Maybe uh, maybe America is a little bit yesterday. Maybe India is tomorrow. Maybe this is the century of as as he puts it in the film, the white man is over. The white man is yesterday. This is the century of the yellow man and the brown man, uh, which is. We obviously have limited knowledge of the absolutely complex entity that is India, uh, and we're not going to pretend at all to understand all the economic and political forces at work there. But, I will. Uh, Don't worry. There I'll, is, I'll take care of that. There's kind of a lot happening there right now. There is uh, there's a lot happening politically. There is a lot happening economically. They just uh, they just completely revalued their currency and replaced all of their existing banknotes in order to get out all this cash that was just hidden away for years and years and, uh, and evading taxes. Um there's also a massive Hindu nationalist movement going on. There's a lot of oppression of Muslims going on, uh, including restricting their citizenship and passports. There's uh, um, and and there is uh, there is kind of this this feeling of uh, of India's rising economic prospects. Uh, also, uh, you know, increasing participation in the global IT workforce and and what does that mean? And this this is something that I've been interacting with in the IT field for for you know the past decade and beyond. So. I found that I had a lot to. I found that I was learning a lot about this film's perspective on these matters, but I also I had questions and I had things that I wanted to say back at it. So this film, in addition to being a very compelling narrative, is also kind of a kind of a think piece. So Daniel, what did you think of it? I selected this film 
Uh, you did. As, what uh, made you pick it? You, you were kind enough to you know, give me an offering of uh, uh, picking a movie. Uh, I didn't even watch the trailer. I followed your rule set. For yeah, this. that's good, right? It's better experience. Uh, I picked this film because I think India is a very vastly complicated and interesting place. A place that growing up uh, in school, uh, we never really cover India. <laughs> Like, yeah. you become a Gandhi for, like, a half a minute, and that was it. I think India being the world's largest democracy and a place with, like, just dozens of large political organizations, there's more than, like, two parties, right? It's not like America yeah. where we have, you know, the GOP and the Democrats, like... Well, they, they inherited their parliamentary system from the from the British, right? So they have their... They have lots of different parties. They, yeah, they have not only national parties, but regional parties, and they all play a role in their gigantic Congress, uh, and, and I just think India is a really interesting place that we don't know enough about. Like we all know yeah. about outsourcing, right? Like, you know, our call center jobs out there, but like, what, what is India, right? There's still a caste system that impacts, you know, hundreds of millions of people. There's, you know, Muslims, like you said, uh, who are being discriminated against. There's a lot of other ethnic groups. There's, you know, there's different religious groups, you know, like, uh, the Jains who, who are, you know, if not oppressed, at least marginalized a bit. And, yeah, I don't, I don't know enough about India, so I wanted to check this movie out. This is book based on a book, a book I have not read, uh, but I, I was really taken in by it. I, I think, you know, I compared it uh, to you off, off mic to Parasite, and uh, I, I think I like this better than Parasite. I didn't really like Parasite. Everybody else did. But I really liked, <laughs> I liked this because I thought it was a much more complicated view of what Parasite was trying to do. I think you're right, but I also think that Parasite taking place as it did in Korea was was analyzing a whole different set of economic and social pressures and was also in a, in a country that is uh, that is wealthier and that seems to have, uh, I guess I would just say, less a less complex and chaotic economic situation than what is happening in India right now. And that is purely just a matter of numbers. There are so many more people in India than there are in Korea. Well, it's also a bigger place. <laughs> necessarily going to be more complex there and and obviously you know you can find complexity in any country here but it was i find it interesting to sort of dive into the complexity that is india because they're not a country that we're particularly friendly with or particularly a rival of they're they're just kind of there and they are the world's largest democracy and when i when i hear about shortcomings of of the country in terms of how they treat minority religious populations and how how their political system functions and where where there's corruption where there where there are, uh you know issues with with uh, with inequality and and, uh, and poverty and things like that. I, I try not to make those things into the other because America may be a much wealthier country, but we have a lot of those same problems here. And I kind of try to look for the helpers. I kind of try to look for, hey, how are they trying to improve their situation? What can we do to help? What can, you know, what is that going to mean as this country becomes whatever it's going to become as we as we advance into the 21st century and as they've got more to say and more to do? So I find a movie like this to be a, a, a fascinating cultural document uh, in that that sort of story. Um, and also, it feels like it comes from, it comes from an American perspective because uh, Priyanka Chopra, who's, who's an Indian actress, but is, is one who spent quite a bit of time in the United States and actually has married an American uh, pop singer is, is a producer on this film as is Ava DuVernay. Who's a, uh, who has an overall deal with Netflix, I think, and was involved in the production of this film. Um, this film is definitely like, Hey, <laughs> keep an eye on India. Like it, it, that the sort of feels like the, uh, like, like America, you will be left behind. There are other countries in the world and they do have desires of their own. Um, kind of feels like the overriding message of the film for an American audience. Yeah, I mean, American exceptionalism has been something we've taken for granted for a long time. And yeah, we're, we're being caught up by. Like, like there are other countries that are hustling and they have their own set of problems and, and complexities. But honestly, like, India 
kind of worries me like a little bit. Same with China. Like not that we're going to be supplanting per se, but that they're going to get a seat at the table. We may still be the head of the table right now, but that may not be forever. So digging into the film itself, I really liked Balram as a character. I think that his ability to balance entrepreneurial zeal and desire with also the ingrained, I'm a servant, I must be a good servant, uh, and him basically battling himself throughout the film, what was really interesting. I, I felt bad for him, like, because he's just born into the into this cast, but also I felt bad for him because he was just programmed that that's all he could possibly expect. Being a driver is the best he could possibly do. And the guy wanted more. He's in this uh, He's in this hallway cast, and we don't really know what that is. It's never explained in the film. And in fact, the movie goes out of its way to simplify the cast system, which I think was intended to explain it to an audience that was not necessarily going to be familiar with. So obviously I appreciated that. Um, but it was basically saying, hey, the cast system, which which is, you know, it, it's very, very old. It goes, you know, it goes back centuries, maybe even you know, thousands of years here. It's evolved over time. But like the only cast system that really matters is who's calling the shots, who's got a full belly and who's starving, basically. Right. And that's that's how he that's how he broke it down is who's got a who's got a big belly and who's starving. And if you're starving, you've you know, you want to get yourself a belly. So the way that he has that in mind or the way what he has in mind to do that is both leaving his family behind in this in this village and also going to work for the stork and the mongoose. So, Daniel, what did you think of the stork and the mongoose? Yeah, the mongoose wasn't really a very nice gentleman. And uh, the stork the stork likes his, uh, his calf massages. And, you know, I like them too. So I didn't really begrudge him that. But, yeah, not not great people. Uh, they're coal miners, uh, uh, coal uh, uh, enterprise. Oh, is that what they were? Okay, I, I, I caught that it was some sort of mineral extraction, but I wasn't totally sure. Yeah, so they extract coal. Not a vision for the future right there. No, they get caught up in the political game because they're tax evaders. And uh, the great socialist who we meet. Her name is literally the great socialist. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and they simplified the political parties too, right? So like we know there are dozens of political parties in India as well as regional parties, uh, like I said earlier. But in, in this movie, there's two, right? There's the great socialist and whoever's against the great socialist. Uh, the, an unnamed political party. And the uh, this family, the, the stork and the mongoose and Ashok, uh, and, and and the rest of the family uh, are trying to pay the bribe to the one that's going to win the political election so they don't have to pay taxes. Yeah, this is what I love about the great socialist is we see her uh, on all these posters. You know, she's the one who's going to save us all. She's the one looking out for the common people. And we meet her and it is revealed in like the first two minutes of meeting this character. She is exactly as corrupt as any other politician. And, and she's also quite rude. Yeah, brusque. Ha- you know, she's got a person who negotiates bribes for her. But basically, they're just like, you know, fuck her. We'll, we'll go to Delhi and we'll bribe the the national party, you know, directly. And that's that's basically what ends up happening and what brings uh, Balram... And the stork's younger son, Ashok, who has gone to America and married an American woman, Pinky, played by Priyanka Chopra, and has brought her back to India. It's what brings the three of them to Delhi. And there's a solid like 40 minutes of setup here. So it, so before we even get to the point of, of them going off on uh, on this kind of adventure, we learn about his life beforehand. We learn about him kind of wheeling and dealing his way into the house of this of this local political and economic power broker, the stork, who, again, we don't know his name. He's just the stork. Yeah, he's the landlord for the town. Yeah. And it also it seems like he it seems like it is basically feudalism. Like they they make their money and they just give it all to him. And then he gives them a pittance back like that. That's kind right, of what it right. seems. He lives in a gay community, you know, that that's paid for by 
uh, his tithings and as well as uh, his uh, coal mining extraction. And he basically just sort of sweet talks his way in there. And but that's not all he does. <laughs> Uh, I mean, he ends up getting the original driver fired for being a Muslim, and he does not feel a whole lot of guilt about that. Like, we hear in sort of voiceover narration, he's like, well, I feel bad, but better him than me. It's basically like he, he yeah. rationalizes that with alarming ease. Yeah, he does, because he, that guy's the first guy in his way, right? That The you know, first driver is the first hurdle he needs to overcome. And he found yeah, the dude's like, weakness. The dude's a Muslim, and the stork hates Muslims. So that was an easy out. Uh, similar yeah, I mean, to he was he was taunting the guy initially like he wasn't gonna do it and then he just does it so it was uh, it, it was it was a, a little bit sadistic the way it played out yeah you know like the more we learn about Balram and and the more uh, power he gets or at least like potential power he gets the more we learn he's not really a great guy and I mean like he's he starts the movie by writing a letter to the head of state of China who's coming for a visit yeah. Who at that point was Wen Jiabo. It was pre-President Xi. It was pre-all the purges. It was before China was what it is today. Right. And it's uh, he's like, hey, here's my story. This is, I am India. That's what he's saying. Yeah. I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah. And it's a rather bold and brash statement for, you know, first off, right? Like this guy represents entrepreneurship in India. But it's also like a good window into how he sees himself. Well, and of course, this is also, I assume, using the the novel's narration framework. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it's sort of a sort of a dear Mister Henshaw kind of letter where we're basically just having this guy tell his life story by way of writing to this person. Uh, yeah, exactly. Isn't as important and significant, um, but at the same time, we we get little hints of what he's going to become because we we see in flash forwards that he is in Bangalore in 2010. And he's he's wearing a fancy suit. He's got a fancy haircut, and he looks a little bit more evil. He sure does. He looks like he's a uh, leader of men. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so we don't know how he gets there or when he's going to get there or who he's going to have to step on to get there. But we know that this is a dark story that ends with with him on top. We just don't know how he gets there. And he knows. He knows by going down this path, if he upsets the mongoose and the stork and that family, that his family's done for. Like, they show that in, in, in detail. Like, the stork will send, like, his henchmen and they will kill his family. Yeah, and that, and that's kind of his his going going in. That's the fear that he has is well, I can try and rise above my station, but if I fuck anything up, he's going to kill my family. <laughs> uh, so, and then of course he has an evolving attitude about his family over the course of the film. So it's uh, it's very fascinating to watch all of that happen. I loved the uh, I loved the look of this film. Uh, it was it was really just fascinating seeing all these different parts of India, um, not just Delhi, but uh, but also kind of kind of rural parts of India, different uh, different trains and train stations and different bits of architecture. I mean, it's really quite a fascinating tour of the country. Uh, you know, I assume just very small parts of the country, but uh, but it's quite a lovely film to see. Um, yeah, it, it delves into some moral complexity. It, I, I think it, it explicitly thumbs its nose at the likes of Slumdog Millionaire and mm-hmm. sort of previous Western attempts to to both peek an eye into India and also sort of present a simplistic, happy narrative about India. Well, yeah, he's, and this is he, not di- this is not a happy story at all. Right. He directly calls Slumdog Millionaire at one point, saying that it's going to take more than winning a million dollar you know rupee prize to get me out of this. Exactly. And uh, and you know. Basically, this guy this guy earns his place at the top in the same way as anybody else by by stomping his way up there. So it's it's very fascinating to see. Um, Ardash Gurov is 
I mean, the way that he, the way that he sort of code switches between, uh, as as you said, kind of the servant voice and kind of the servant persona, and the I you know I am I am merciless and I will step on you to get to my next place. It's really quite fascinating to see that happen over the course of this, because um, he doesn't feel false. He doesn't feel like he's putting on airs. He always feels like he's sincere. Right. It's not jarring at all. It's just an extension of his yeah. personality. Uh, what did you think of Rajkumar Rao as Ashok? I felt great sympathy for Ashok. <laughs> I was worried about him the whole time. Like, here, here's a guy who uh, wasn't always from India, right? He lived in New York for a while. Yeah. Uh, he wants to be a musician. He has the classic rich person problem of, well, I don't know what I want to do with my life. But I don't, I don't necessarily have to apply myself. I just have to figure out what's next. Yeah, he's pretty inept. He doesn't make a lot of decisions, and he's surrounded by people who are generally more capable than he is. So it's it's a it's a difficult situation to be in, I suppose. He's also got people who are constantly looking out for him. Pinky is also a fascinating character. What did you think of Priyanka Chopra Jonas as this character? I really liked her performance. I think that she balanced the Western outrage versus just like kind of maliciousness <laughs> pretty well. Her outrage definitely had sort of an impudent streak to it. Like she was not just raging against kind of her ancestral home uh, or even her own country. I don't know if she was supposed, I, don't, I, th- I think the character was supposed to be American in the film. Yes. But, you know, Priyanka Chopra is from India to begin with. So I don't know if that was an Indian American raging against India or just an American with Indian ancestry raging against, uh, against India. But either way, it didn't seem as if anybody in India took her particularly seriously. And that just made her angrier. <laughs> right. And she didn't care about the patriarchy, right? Like she, yeah. when she Fuck wanted it. something, she made it happen. But she's also like, she had a vindictive streak, right? Like she does some things where, uh, you know, in the film, I guess when we we get into spoilers, we could talk about where I definitely question her motives. She also, I think at at times she feels like she's sort of accepting people as they are. And at times I think that she is putting on sort of the paternalistic air of an American of, I need to rescue these people or I need to save these people from themselves. And watching sort of the interplay between those elements as she's trying to sort of navigate being back in India, where a the family did not approve of her of her and Ashok getting married in the first place, and b she's sort of at a lower station socially because nobody really cares what she has to say. It's pretty fascinating to see that interplay happening, you know, even as Balram's sort of rise to power is happening. Yeah, her benevolence comes with strings, right? She's not really speaking up because she understands somebody's plight. She's speaking up because she wants her voice heard. In the same way, Ashok and Balram's relationship is pretty fascinating over the course of this as well, because they're not exactly friends, but they're not exactly servant and master either. They seem to bo- they seem to constantly be fighting against whatever lanes they're supposed to be in, basically. Yeah, I got sense that Ashok view him as a, an employee rather than a servant. Yeah. And at the same time, I mean, the stork and the mongoose would occasionally treat him nicely, but it was always... It was very clear that they did not give a shit about him. Oh, no, no. At least it was very it was very clear to me 100% of the time. I don't think it was clear to him 100% of the time. But I think that's definitely a source of anger for him over the course of the film is as he comes to realize these things. Right, because he was it's ingraining in him to always adhere to the to his master's you know wishes, right? That his master looks out for him, that kind of paternal instinct, that extremism. He was born with it and you know, taught that every day of his life. That, yeah, the, the mongoose and the stork, they would kill him in a heartbeat if he really pissed him off. 
You know, a film that came to mind as I think back on this film is Goodfellas uh, in, in terms of sort of Ray Liotta's character as kind of this young blood mafia person try, uh, rising to power amid all these different people. And he's kind of trying to find his own way, but also trying to shove people out of his way to, to rise through the ranks. I found that like that's the sort of character we're focusing on here. This is a guy who you sort of want to root for, but he's also doing some pretty bad things over the course of this. So you're not sure how much you want to root for him. Right. Shall we get uh, into spoilers? Sounds good to me. Uh, Daniel, any final thoughts before we get into spoilers? I watched this movie at 6 a.m. the other day. I watched it before work. I was riveted it the entire time. I enjoyed it the entire time. And uh, it was a good start to the day. So I, I definitely really like this film. I liked it better than Parasite, like I said earlier. I think this is a movie everyone should see. I agree with this as well. I very much like this movie. I think that this movie, what I said about it on the night, and I watched this movie actually very late at night. I did the inverse of what you did. but Look at you. I had no trouble uh, sticking with this film. I was completely riveted by it the whole time. I got a different vibe from it than I did from Parasite because Parasite felt like it was uh, a little bit spinning a yarn and trying to be funny while also making a point. This movie did not feel like it was spinning a yarn. It did not. It felt like it was deathly serious. Um, even like there were moments where it was cracking wise. There were moments where it was clearly trying to sort of prod satire. All these characters, like the great socialist, and sort of poking fun at the political right. system. There were sort of comedic elements in play in this film, but this film really has an edge to it. And it is uh, what I said on the night on Twitter was that the, that the White Tiger is not fucking around, and that's the feeling that I got overriding over the course of this. It is not afraid to be. It is not going to sort of coddle a fragile American audience and uh, pat them on their bums and say, don't worry, you're still the best. Like, it has no patience for that. You know, this guy's just trying to hustle and survive here, and he could give a shit what you think about it. And that that is sort of the chip on this movie's shoulder over the course of it. And it's really what makes it so fascinating, what makes it feel like such an honest piece of storytelling. So, cannot recommend this movie enough either. There's two strong starts for the year for our first podcast. Yeah, it's- Usually I hate one of the films, so it's good that we start with the two ones that I, at least I like. I mean, we skipped January entirely. We also didn't get a conventional January theatrical release where they just sort of dump all the crap into uh, the first month of the year because because we're still on the tail end of COVID here. So uh, yeah, I don't know. This might be might be a little bit different uh, different movie year than ever before. So we'll just have to wait and see. All right. Well, from here on out, spoilers for the White Tiger. So off we go to Delhi, and uh, once we're there, he ends up setting up setting up camp down in the parking garage. Yeah, you know, I could do. Which I guess is where the servants sleep. Lovely, lovely quarters he had. That was sort of where I got the first inkling of, you know, Pinky's like, hey, you don't have to call me ma'am, you don't have to call him sir, you can call us by our names. Uh, as soon as they got there and they're like, all right, you sleep down there. I'm like, oh, okay. So they're not, they didn't really mean that. They're not going to give him a room up no, in, the, no. in the quarters. No, they, they view him as an employee. And down there, that's where you sleep. So, and this is where he starts. Uh, this is where he starts getting a little, a little embittered. And it starts, I think, before the car crash. I think he's starting to get that feeling before that happens because he's he's starting to get angry at his family. He's sending money back home, but he doesn't really want to do it anymore because they want him to get married. They want him to come back home and continue with the family business. They basically want him to undo everything he's done. They want him to 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 leave his job and come back to them. Yeah, his family is asking for quite a bit of of, of his income too. So he's giving up, yeah. like, what was it, like, most, most of, of it. it, like 80 or 90 percent, and he only keeps a pittance. Uh, and his family's not, like, grateful. It's expected, right? 
Yeah, the the rooster coop metaphor is what he uses at the beginning here, and that that that's what the majority of Indians are in of the lower castes. They're in a rooster coop. And the implication there is that if all of them decided to try and escape at once, they could do I I I, I didn't fully grok this metaphor. Because it seems like a rooster coop is a cage, right? Like they let him out one at a time to kill them. It, I don't, I don't know. It's, I get what he was going for there. That uh, that Ooh. it's a it's a way of controlling people and sort of keeping them in their lane and and only trotting them out when they're ready to. But I, I didn't quite quite get that metaphor. Well, I think what he was trying to convey is that the roosters don't even make an attempt to escape. They just accept their fate and just sit there, even though they're watching as their fellow man or fellow rooster in this case are charred out and murdered. Uh, that they guess they don't make an effort because th- this is what's expected of them. Okay, got it. So it's the visibility of the. That's right. And he did cover that at the at the beginning that it was about them being able to see it. Of course, it's it's not a perfect metaphor because roosters are not like they can obviously smell blood and they might have an instinctual reaction to danger in the same way that that animals have, but they're not going to be able to infer. They're not going to be able to do sort of complex cognition and figure oh, out. Careful okay, there, if I careful there, Mister Human. Cage, I'm going to have my head chopped off by that axe over there. You don't know. Um, the more we learn about animal cognition, the more we learn that animals are much smarter than we uh, give them credit for. Not chickens, though, surely. But that seems like seems chickens like a, are uh, bred to be basically fat and full of hormones. We're not going to solve that metaphor on this podcast. We are going they, to solve it, and the implications of it for for India, the idea that there's one person in control of a bunch of people, are obviously clear here. Um, but but the that's what sort of an that's what sort of an irony there is that his uh, his kind of filial piety, his, his sort of duty to his family, um, is just another form of that. Right. It's just another form of social control. At least that's what. Well, it and like his uh, his grandmother uh, says that if you don't come home, I'm going to send my uh, the bride I picked out to you in Delhi. <laughs> Like, he, he feels trapped. And I think the embitterment uh, with Pinky and uh, Ashok really comes to play when they when uh, Pinky's drunk and she kicks him out of the vehicle and leaves him there. And, like, yeah, she comes back. Which is a fucked up thing to do to him. But it's cruel, right? It's very cruel what she did. Because Even jokingly, it was, it was fucked yeah, up. Yeah, because, like, I don't know how long he was waiting there. Like, it, it, like, she comes back, like, right away, at least, like, in the film. But... For all we know, like he was there for like thirty minutes, and then they came back for him. Long enough to believe that it was really happening, and that's and that marked her as kind of a shitty person because that's a, that's a prank where you just make somebody feel bad about something plausible. Yeah, you go around the block and then you come right back. You're like, I'm just fucking. I wouldn't do that to you, yeah. or you don't do it's, it at all. And, and it's also, mean. it's some high school shit. So. Yeah, I don't know. It's it, it's in Vino Veritas. When she gets drunk, she's got a nasty streak on, and that's. Uh, and she was also, you know, she was angry and bitter about some other things as well. She's not thrilled with how with how Ashok was treating her and how his family was treating her. So I think some of her bitterness was coming out, and of course she was just punching downward, even though she she felt like she was above this whole caste system. Right. There's a there's a convenient punching bag right there in the form of our completely sober servant who is happy to drive us around anywhere. Going to throw his ass out of the car. <laughs> Um, I think sort of for for hollering at a child or for telling a child. Yeah, the, car, so like, a child was, uh, he, you know, the child was doing their hustle, right? They were selling some knickknack thing, selling Buddha statues, and uh, you know, uh, uh, Balram was like, "You basically get the fuck away," and she's like, "You do not yell at a child." Well, later, yeah. later we know what Pinky does with a child. She runs that child over. Yeah. Probably not the same child, but no, still, you know, child. killing children is bad. To be fair to Pinky, that child ran right into the middle of the road when there was nobody else around. Yeah. If, there, if that child waited it, two seconds more, no accident. 
but it, but Pinky was driving drunk and didn't need to be, so she sort of takes on a certain measure of moral culpability there. Only slightly, though. Pretty sure that child didn't need to be running out at 2 a.m. So that's sort of the inciting incident for, for Act 2, wherein they're like, okay, how do we pin this on the help? <laughs> Straight away. Um so, uh, you know, Pinky's not present for this, and uh, and they're they're trying to get him to sign a confession. Ashok is like, we can't do this. This isn't right. But he's also, like, taking drinks behind the bar, and he's not really stopping it from happening. And, and the stork and the mongoose are sweet-talking Balram hard to get him to sign a confession saying he drove the car and it was his fault, and he was alone in the car. Um, and that he took the car without permission. Like, they're fully they're throwing him under on, the bus, yeah. just like that child. <laughs> And, um, in, in what turns out to be completely unnecessary. Right, but that's that's the moment where, you know, the switch flips and Balram's like, these people, like, one, he's angry at himself for not even asking for anything in return. Well, he's angry in retrospect. The voiceover narration is from 2010 and he's just like, I am, I'm so angry now. I want to go out and slit the throat of a rich man. Um, he's very, he's very specific about that. But we don't know how angry he was at first. It was just the it was just the gradual realization. I think there was shame at first. The very the very first thing that he does after signing that document with a, with a grin on his face is he goes down to the golf course down below the down below the uh, the condo complex there or wherever it is, and he just kind of hides in the bushes. He kind of bows his head and hides in the bushes like he like he doesn't want to be seen. Like he wants to hide from the sun. And it was really quite something to see. Like, this was just sort of his low point. This was his dark night of the soul. And that he was going to emerge and being like, all right, well, this is fucked. Time to start a new life. Yeah, uh, he rises like the phoenix. And uh, he starts to work some uh, work some hustle, uh, you know, himself. Yeah, so what are his hustles? He starts giving. He starts operating a taxi service with his master's car. He starts stealing gasoline and selling it. He starts it. stealing gasoline. He basically runs an Uber service and... Uh, he shorts his master on repairs, unnecessary repairs, and then uh, pockets oh, the yeah, money. Oh, yeah, get him some invoices for stuff he doesn't actually need. But that wasn't enough, right? He wasn't making a lot of money doing that. He was just getting more of a cut than uh, what he was being offered by a shark. Well, and then he starts to, he comes to understand what it is that they're doing in Delhi, which is they're paying these massive, you know, multi-million rupee bribes to the to the pol- to the political parties there in these giant red bags and he realizes that a it's way more money than he's been stealing from the master in the first place which explains how he's able to get away with it it's so it's so little money to them it doesn't even register right. and and two he starts to get a little bit political about it at least in terms of his justification he says they're ba- like he he envisions a man on the street basically explaining his rationalization to him. I, I guess that was a complete fantasy, but but you know these guys are bribing the politicians so they don't have to pay taxes, so they're stealing from us. Taking that money is not even theft. They're stealing from the country. They're stealing from all of us. That man was his father. Oh, that man was his father. Really? No, like his father died, but that 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 uh, vision was his father telling him this. Oh, okay. I did not pick up on that. That's interesting. Um, yeah, because we never saw his father alive back in his village. Right, well, he got uh, TB and, and dies pretty quickly when he was a young kid. That's, okay, that's right. It's a very quick detail established in passing. I remember this now. 
Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's a large amount of money. And then, of course, despite all of their bribery, the National Party ends up losing to the Great Socialists. So yeah, they're get, they're they're getting double billed now. They got to go bribe the Socialists for even more than they bribed the uh, the opposition. Yeah, she asked for four times the amount of the original bribe. Uh, they were given two and a half million before they are they offered her two and a half million, and they and uh, the Great Socialist has a fixer there in the car and is like, yeah, is that how much you gave the opposition? You give us four million instead. Uh, I'm sorry, it wasn't four times. It was just basically double. Yeah, that great socialist. Not the nicest person in the world. Hey, can't be a great socialist unless you collect money from rich people, am I right? I guess. Yeah, I I don't think the movie is intending that we exercise too much moral judgment over him over the end of this film. Because if if we were to if we were to be discerning about what happens at the end of this film, he's sort of trying to be a better person. He's sort of trying to be the change that he wants to see in the world. He kills a shark. Yeah, he murders a shark with a fucking, uh, what does he beat him with? He, a, bottle. a broken right. bottle, a broken beer bottle. And he stabs his, he stabs his, you know, master of death in the middle of the ring and leaves him dead on the side of the road. And then, yeah, he kills him. He takes, to, uh, he takes his nephew who joined him there to Bangalore, but he leaves the rest of his family behind, possibly to be murdered. Most probably to be murdered. Yeah. And, we see a newspaper headline about a family of 17 killed in his home state. We don't know for sure that that's his family. They keep it nice and vague on that. We but. can infer. We can infer that he tied up that loose end. We can infer that he knew that it was a possibility and he still did what he did. So we intend the natural consequences of our actions. And he clearly at that point did not care about his family enough to prevent them from being murdered. So uh, except for his nephew, who just happened to be the one that he was with. So. So they go on. They go on to Bangalore. He's a little fucked up from the murder. Uh, so he just kind of he just kind of stares at the walls for four weeks. That was a nice little detail there. Um, killing a man is not. He's not, he's like I'm not like the rich people. I can't just kill people. I'm I'm not like the great politicians who can kill people and then go eat breakfast the next morning. <laughs> I have to you know sit with that guilt for a little while. So he does that, but then he moves on from it and he opens up. Uh, he he bribes the police chief to arrest all the other drivers. So he throws a bunch of other drivers under the bus, and then he starts his own uh, his own cab company in the ruins. Yeah, and he takes uh, Shuck's name. Yeah, I don't know. It's it, it feels like the axiom that every fortune begins with a crime. It's it's first cow all over again, right? Well, and also like he doesn't bootstrap himself. Like he stole bribe money that wasn't his and used that money to you know create a business empire. What do you think bootstrapping is, Daniel? <laughs> Bootstrapping is working hard, going in early, staying late, and making your way through hard work and determination. The physical image of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps violates the laws of physics, and that's why I think it is intended to be ironic. I think pulling yourself up by your bootstraps no, is... No, no, Glenn, you just aren't pulling hard enough. Balram is no better than Trump, who took $100 million from his father to start the real estate empire. He just took bribe money... You know, coal bribe money from a master he murdered <laughs> and started Uber. So, yeah, this movie, I mentioned it has a chip on its shoulder, but it also has a swagger. And I think those are sort of the competing forces over the course of the film is that it's going to tell you about this guy. But you better fucking watch out for him. Like, no matter how you feel about what it, what he's done or what he's become... This is India, basically. It is very much this Indian nationalist moment that, that is be, that is on display here. So, so that is kind of how I regard the film. It is this cultural document. It is it is this kind of Indian swagger type film. And I don't know. Having seen so much of that from my own country, it's something that I that a I can't judge too harshly, and b I find kind of fascinating to see from another country. So. Other countries have confidence and arrogance. So strange and swagger. Well, Daniel, any final thoughts about the film? 
No, I was I, I was really pleasantly surprised by it. I, I thought it was great. I really enjoyed I really enjoyed how dark it was. <laughs> uh, I think it'll stick with me for a while, and I look forward to seeing more movies about India. Most definitely, I, I loved the I loved the kind of international perspective that this movie brought to these issues. You know, it's obviously a work of fiction, but it's obviously grounded in some real issues here. I, I you know I work in the IT industry, which means that I've interacted with you know we have a sizable Indian diaspora here in Seattle, and I've worked with a number of Indians uh, who are who are you know here on H one B visas and are here to do IT work alongside me. And you know it's um, it's always interesting chatting with them about you know hey where are you you know where are you from what's uh, you know what's going what's going on there what do you think of the U S what you know what, do do you like it here what it's always it's always and that's that's always fascinating to meet any immigrant and kind of hear their story and hear their perspective on things. But India in particular, because we have this sort of symbiotic relationship and and occasionally parasitic relationship between our IT industries with outsourcing of American IT jobs to India. At the same time, we'll sort of throw that that outsourcing under the bus whenever we want to evade guilt for something that we've done as an American company. I'm thinking in particular of Boeing here with its uh, 737 MAX MCAS system and how some of that work was done by Indian contractors. And then there was a little bit of sort of saying the quiet part out loud of, oh, wait, we shouldn't have let India handle that system. Sorry, everybody. That's why the planes crashed. And like, that is fucked up. Like, that's like software is built to spec. And you're hiring a bunch of coders who are well-trained and who are building the piece of software that you asked them to build according to your specifications with your fucked up like engine sitting forward of the wings design to do the thing that you told them that you wanted it to do and you can't judge an entire country for deliver it for you know what one company delivered to you because that's exactly what you asked them for so well you can when there's a lot of money on the line and i mean that's that's what's going on in bangalore it is basically this you know it is the silicon valley of uh, of india and i could see them saying like silicon valley wa- uh, was yesterday and bangalore is today and that's that's a reasonable position if you're in the if you're in the burgeoning tech industry in bangalore so that's an interplay that is going to continue i think that our information economy is kind of is kind of our biggest industry at this point and you know it's it's not just going to be india it'll be other countries too cuz coding can happen anywhere so well, anywhere there's internet. Yeah, true. And, uh, you know, that was a big part of, uh, of Bangalore becoming a tech hub was sort of advancing its, you know, they, they, they made sure they they made sure they had a solid electrical grid. They made sure that they had an educated workforce. And once they had those, those things, they were ready to go. Well, are we ready to go to Bangalore? Maybe at some point. I'm interested in going to India sometime. It's uh, it is a fascinating and complicated country that I could spend my entire life exploring and still not see all of. Well, you're gonna have to because you, sir, have been exiled. <laughs> oh no! Uh, but no. Uh, if you want to go to India, I'll, I'll go with you. Yeah, I would. I would love to at some point, uh, most definitely. If nothing else, um, there are so many different, fascinating kinds of food. It's a massive country with many different regional foods, and I've only had just the tiniest little smattering mm-hmm. of God knows how inauthentic it was at various places in the U.S. And I just want to go there and eat everything. So, <laughs> like a true white man. <laughs> exactly. I just want to go to that place. I want to go there and, and consume everything. your culture. I will by... devour all of your resources, Glen Bristol. <laughs> Yeah, no, you know, I want to like just just walking down the street in Delhi, driving down the street, seeing this film was was very interesting. Just for you look, you look up, you look around. It's different architecture. It's different. It's different road layouts. It's it's fascinating just to see a place that's so completely different. Yeah, from what I'm used yeah, to. I, I felt I felt the same way about Thailand. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion of The White Tiger. If you have any feedback on our discussion, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. And you can check that movie out on Netflix right now. And Bliss, of course, drops this Friday, February 5th, by which point this podcast will probably be out. So uh, check that out on Amazon Prime. Thank you for tuning in at filmwonk.net and have a good night. 
जानवर तो बबले के बैन करे निकला जंजीर को तोड़ के आजाद होकर जानवर तो बबले के बैन करे निकला जंजीर को तोड़ के आजाद होकर घूम ये जंगल 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 का मंदिर करना है